Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been almost a week since our last episode. Last Sunday, we produced episode two. We changed venues and we're now back in sunny South Florida. It took a few days out of the schedule to get back here and travel back to the Sunshine State, but we've got our podcast capabilities set up now. So we're ready for production and episodes will resume this week. South Florida is an interesting place for conspiracy theorists of the JFK assassination. I grew up in this neck of the woods and it's rich in Cuban history. The story of Cuba and the Cuban community of South Florida is fascinating all by itself. But that period of time in Cuba and here in South Florida played an integral part in the story surrounding the JFK presidency, and it also has mysterious and deeper elements tied to the assassination itself. But like I've said so many times to you already, you'll hear about that in another episode. Right now, we're going to continue bringing you the Warren Commission narrative, the story in their own words that they've told the American public back in 1964. This episode is mostly about Lee Harvey Oswald in his early years, wandering all the way up to the day of the assassination. So let's waste no more time and get going on episode three, the Warren Commission narrative, part two. As you might remember, we left off last week as Captain Fritz was making his way back from the Texas School Book Depository to the Dallas Police Department offices. As Fritz and Day were completing their examination of this rifle on the sixth floor, Roy Truly, the building superintendent, approached with information which he felt should be brought to the attention of the police. Earlier, while the police were questioning the employees, Truly had observed that Lee Harvey Oswald, one of the 15 men who worked in the warehouse, was missing. After Truly provided Oswald's name, address, and general description, Fritz left for police headquarters. He arrived at headquarters shortly after 2 p.m. and asked two detectives to pick up the employee who was missing from the Texas School Book Depository. Standing nearby were the police officers who had just arrived with a man arrested in the Texas theater. When Fritz mentioned the name of the missing employee, he learned that the man was already in the interrogation room. The missing school book depository employee and the suspect who had been apprehended in the Texas theater were one and the same, Lee Harvey Oswald. The suspect that Fritz was about to question in connection with the assassination of the president and the murder of a policeman was born in New Orleans on October 18, 1939, two months after the death of his father. His mother, Marguerite Clavery Oswald, had two older children. One, John Pick, was a half-brother to Lee from an earlier marriage which had ended in divorce. The other was Robert Oswald, a full brother to Lee and five years older. When Lee Oswald was three, Mrs. Oswald placed him in an orphanage where his brother and half-brother were already living, 
primarily because she had to work. In January 1944, when Lee was four, he was taken out of the orphanage and shortly thereafter his mother moved with him to Dallas, Texas, where the older boys joined them at the end of the school year. In May of 1945, Marguerite Oswald married her third husband, Edwin A. Ekdahl. While the two older boys attended a military boarding school, Lee lived at home and developed a warm attachment to Ekdahl, occasionally accompanying his mother and stepfather on business trips around the country. Lee started school in Benbrook, Texas, but in the fall of 1946, after a separation from Ekdahl, Marguerite Oswald re-entered Lee into the first grade in Covington, Louisiana. In January 1947, while Lee was still in the first grade, the family moved to Fort Worth, Texas, as the result of an attempted reconciliation between Ekdahl and Lee's mother. A year and a half later, before Lee was nine, his mother was divorced from her third husband as the result of a divorce action instituted by Ekdahl. Lee's school record during the next five and a half years in Fort Worth was average. The comments of teachers and others who knew him at the time do not reveal any unusual personality traits or characteristics. Another change for Lee Oswald occurred in August 1952, a few months after he completed the sixth grade. Marguerite Oswald and her 12-year-old son moved to New York City, where Marguerite's oldest son, John Pick, was stationed with the Coast Guard. The ensuing year and one half in New York was marked by Lee's refusals to attend school and by emotional and psychological problems of a seemingly serious nature. Because he had become a chronic school truant, Lee underwent psychiatric study at Youth House, an institution in New York for juveniles who had truancy problems or difficulties with the law and who appear to require psychiatric observation or other types of guidance. The social worker assigned to his case described him as seriously detached and withdrawn and noted a rather pleasant, appealing quality about this emotionally starved, affectionless youngster. Lee expressed the feeling to the social worker that his mother did not care for him and regarded him as a burden. He experienced fantasies about being all-powerful and hurting people, but during his stay at Youth House, he was apparently not a behavior problem. He appeared withdrawn and evasive, a boy who preferred to spend his time alone reading and watching television. His tests indicated he was above average in intelligence for his age group. The chief psychiatrist of Youth House diagnosed Lee's problem as a personality pattern disturbance with schizoid features and passive-aggressive tendencies. He concluded that the boy was an emotionally quite disturbed youngster and recommended psychiatric treatment. In May 1953, after having been at Youth House for three weeks, Lee Oswald returned to school where his attendance and grades temporarily improved. By the following fall, however, the probation officer reported that virtually every teacher complained about the boy's behavior. His mother insisted that he did not need psychiatric assistance. Although there was apparently some improvement in Lee's behavior during the next few months, the court recommended further treatment. In January 1954, while Lee's case was still pending, 
Marguerite and Lee left for New Orleans, the city of Lee's birth. Upon his return to New Orleans, Lee maintained mediocre grades, but had no obvious behavior problems. Neighbors and others who knew him outside of school remembered him as a quiet, solitary, and introverted boy who read a great deal and whose vocabulary made him quite articulate. About one month after he started the 10th grade and 11 days before his 16th birthday in October 1955, he brought to school a note purportedly written by his mother stating that the family was moving to California. The note was written by Lee. A few days later, he dropped out of school and almost immediately tried to join the Marine Corps. Because he was only 16, he was rejected. After leaving school, Lee worked for the next 10 months at several jobs in New Orleans as an office manager or clerk. It was during this period that he started to read communist literature. Occasionally, in conversations with others, he praised communism and expressed to his fellow employees a desire to join the Communist Party. At about this time, when he was not yet 17, he wrote to the Socialist Party of America, professing his belief in Marxism. Another move followed in July 1956 when Lee and his mother returned to Fort Worth. He re-entered high school but again dropped out after a few weeks and enlisted in the Marine Corps on October 24, 1956, six days after his 17th birthday. On December 21, 1956, during boot camp in San Diego, Oswald fired a score of 212 for record with the M1 rifle, and that's uh, two points over the minimum for a rating of sharpshooter. And that's on a marksman, sharpshooter, expert scale. So after his basic training, Oswald received training in aviation fundamentals and then in radar scanning. Most people who knew Oswald in the Marines described him as a loner who resented the exercise of authority by others. He spent much of his free time reading. He was court-martialed once for possessing an unregistered, privately owned weapon and, on another occasion, for using provocative language to a non-commissioned officer. He was, however, generally able to comply with Marine discipline, even though his experiences in the Marine Corps did not live up to his expectations. Oswald served 15 months overseas until November 1958, most of it in Japan. During his final year in the Marine Corps, he was stationed for the most part in Santa Ana, California, where he showed a marked interest in the Soviet Union and sometimes expressed politically radical views with dogmatic conviction. Oswald again fired the M1 rifle for record on May 6, 1959, and at this time he shot a score of 191 on a shorter course than before, only one point over the minimum required to be a marksman. According to one of his fellow Marines, Oswald was not particularly interested in his rifle performance and his unit was not expected to exhibit the usual rifle proficiency. During this period, he expressed strong admiration for Fidel Castro and interest in joining the Cuban army as well. He tried to impress those around him as an intellectual, but his thinking appeared to some, anyway, as shallow and rigid. Oswald's Marine service terminated on September 11, 1959, when, at his own request, he was released from active service a few months ahead of his scheduled release.
he offered as the reason for his release the ill health and economic plight of his mother. He returned to New Orleans telling his mother he planned to get work there in the shipping or import-export business. In New Orleans, he booked passage on the freighter, the SS Marion Likes, which sailed from New Orleans to La Havre, France, on September 20, 1959. Lee Harvey Oswald had presumably planned this step in his life for quite some time. In March of 1959, he had applied to the Albert Schweitzer College in Switzerland for admission to the spring 1960 term. His letter of application contained many blatant falsehoods concerning his qualifications and background. A few weeks before his discharge, he had applied for and obtained a passport listing the Soviet Union as one of the countries which he had planned to visit. During his service in the Marines, he had saved a comparatively large sum of money, possibly as much as $1,500 which would appear to have been accomplished by considerable frugality and apparently for a specific purpose. The purpose of the accumulated fund soon became known. On October 16, 1959, Oswald arrived in Moscow by train after crossing the border from Finland, where he had secured a visa for a six-day stay in the Soviet Union. He immediately applied for Soviet citizenship. On the afternoon of October 21, 1959, Oswald was ordered to leave the Soviet Union by 8 p.m. that evening. That same afternoon, in his hotel room, Oswald, in an apparent suicide attempt, slashed his left wrist. He was hospitalized immediately. On October 31, three days after his release from the hospital, Oswald appeared at the American Embassy, announced that he wished to renounce his U.S. citizenship and became a Russian citizen, and handed the embassy officer a written statement he had prepared for the occasion. When asked his reasons, Oswald replied, I am a Marxist. Oswald never formally complied with the legal steps necessary to renounce his American citizenship. The Soviet government did not grant his request for citizenship But in January 1960, he was given permission to remain in the Soviet Union on a year-to-year basis. At the same time, Oswald was sent to Minsk, where he worked in a radio factory as an unskilled laborer. In January of 1961, his permission to remain in the Soviet Union was extended for another year. A few weeks later, in February 1961, He wrote to the American Embassy in Moscow expressing a desire to return to the United States. The following month, Oswald met a 19-year-old Russian girl, Marina Nikolaevna Prusakova, a pharmacist who had been brought up in the Leningrad area but was then living with an aunt and uncle in Minsk. They were married on April 30, 1961. Throughout the following year, he carried on a correspondence with American and Soviet authorities seeking approval for the departure of himself and his wife to the United States. In the course of this effort, Oswald and his wife visited the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in July of 1961. Primarily on the basis of an interview and questionnaire completed there, the embassy concluded that Oswald had not lost his citizenship 
a decision subsequently ratified by the Department of State in Washington, D.C. Upon his return to Minsk, Oswald and his wife filed with the Soviet authorities for permission to leave together. Their formal application was made in July 1961, and on December 25, 1961, Marina Oswald was advised it would be granted. A daughter was born to the Oswalds in February 1962. In the months that followed, they prepared for their return to the United States. On May 9, 1962, the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, at the request of the Department of State, agreed to waive a restriction under the law which would have prevented the issuance of a United States visa to Oswald's Russian wife until she had left the Soviet Union. They finally left Moscow on June 1, 1962, and were assisted in meeting their travel expenses by a loan of $435.71 from the U.S. Department of State. Two weeks later, they arrived in Fort Worth, Texas. For a few weeks, Oswald, his wife, and child lived with Oswald's brother, Robert. After a similar stay with Oswald's mother, they moved into their own apartment in early August. Oswald obtained a job on July 16th as a sheet metal worker. During this period in Fort Worth, Oswald was interviewed twice by agents of the FBI. The report of the first interview, which occurred on June 26th, described him as arrogant and unwilling to discuss the reasons why he had gone to the Soviet Union. Oswald denied that he was involved in Soviet intelligence activities and promised to advise the FBI if Soviet representatives ever communicated with him. He was interviewed again on August 16th when he displayed a less belligerent attitude and once again agreed to inform the FBI of any attempt to enlist him in intelligence activities. In early October 1962, Oswald quit his job at the sheet metal plant and moved to Dallas. While living in Fort Worth, the Oswalds had been introduced to a group of Russian-speaking people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Many of them assisted the Oswalds by providing small amounts of food, clothing, and household items. Oswald himself was disliked by almost all of this group, whose help to the family was prompted primarily by sympathy for Marina Oswald and the child. Despite the fact that he had left the Soviet Union disillusioned with its government, Oswald seemed more firmly committed than ever to his concepts of Marxism. He showed disdain for democracy, capitalism, and American society in general. He was highly critical of the Russian-speaking group because they seemed devoted to American concepts of democracy and capitalism and were ambitious to improve themselves economically. In February 1963, the Oswalds met Ruth Payne at a social gathering. Ruth Payne was temporarily separated from her husband and living with her two children in their home in Irving, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. Because of an interest in the Russian language and sympathy for Marina, who spoke no English and had little funds, Ruth Payne befriended Marina and during the next two months visited her on several occasions. On April 6, 1963, Oswald lost his job with a photography firm. A few days later, on April 10th, he attempted to kill Major General Edwin A. Walker, 
who was resigned from the U.S. Army, using a rifle which he had ordered by mail one month previously under an assumed name. Marina Oswald learned of her husband's act when she confronted him with a note which he had left, giving her instructions in the event he did not return. That incident and their general economic difficulties impelled Marina Oswald to suggest that her husband leave Dallas and go to New Orleans to look for work. Oswald left for New Orleans on April 24, 1963. Ruth Payne, who knew nothing of the Walker shooting, invited Marina Oswald and the baby to stay with her in the Payne's modest home while Oswald sought work in New Orleans. Early in May, upon receiving word from Oswald that he had found a job, Ruth Payne drove Marina Oswald and the baby to New Orleans to rejoin Oswald. During the stay in New Orleans, Oswald formed a fictitious New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He posed as secretary of this organization and represented that the president was A.J. Heidel. In reality, Heidel was a completely fictitious person created by Oswald, the organization's only member. Oswald was arrested on August 9th in connection with a scuffle which occurred while he was distributing Procastro leaflets. The next day, while at the police station, he was interviewed by an FBI agent after Oswald requested the police to arrange such an interview. Oswald gave the agent false information about his own background and was evasive in his replies concerning the Fair Play for Cuba activities. During the next two weeks, Oswald appeared on radio programs twice, claiming to be the spokesman for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans. On July 19, 1963, Oswald lost his job as a greaser of coffee processing machinery. In September, after an exchange of correspondence with Marina Oswald, Ruth Payne drove to New Orleans and on September 23rd transported Marina, the child, and the family belongings to Irving, Texas. Ruth Payne suggested that Marina Oswald, who was expecting her second child in October, live at the Payne house until after the baby was born. Oswald remained behind ostensibly to find work either in Houston or some other city. Instead, he departed by bus for Mexico, arriving in Mexico City on September 27th, where he promptly visited the Cuban and Russian embassies. His stated objective was to obtain official permission to visit Cuba on his way to the Soviet Union. The Cuban government would not grant his visa unless the Soviet government would also issue a visa permitting his entry into Russia. Oswald's efforts to secure these visas failed, and he left for Dallas, where he arrived on October 3, 1963. When he saw his wife the next day, it was decided that Oswald would rent a room in Dallas and visit his family on weekends. For one week, he rented a room from Mrs. Bledsoe, the woman who later saw him on the bus shortly after the assassination. On October 14, 1963, he rented the Beckley Avenue room and listed his name as O.H. Lee. On the same day, at the suggestion of a neighbor, Mrs. Payne phoned the Texas School Book Depository and was told that there was a job opening. 
She informed Oswald, who was interviewed the following day at the depository and started to work there on October 16, 1963. On October 20th, the Oswald's second daughter was born. During October and November, Oswald established a general pattern of weekend visits to Irving, arriving on Friday afternoon and returning to Dallas Monday morning with a fellow employee, Buell Wesley Frazier, who lived near the Paines. On Friday, November 15th, Oswald remained in Dallas at the suggestion of his wife, who told him that the house would be crowded because of a birthday party for Ruth Payne's daughter. On Monday, November 18th, Oswald and his wife quarreled bitterly during a telephone conversation because she learned for the first time that he was living at the rooming house under an assumed name. On Thursday, November 21st, Oswald told Frazier that he would like to drive to Irving to pick up some curtain rods for an apartment in Dallas. His wife and Mrs. Payne were quite surprised to see him since it was a Thursday night. They thought he had returned to make up after Monday's quarrel. He was conciliatory, but Marina Oswald was still angry. Later that evening, when Mrs. Payne had finished cleaning the kitchen, she went into the garage and noticed that the light was burning. She was certain that she had not left it on, although the incident appeared unimportant at the time. In the garage were most of the Oswald's personal possessions. The following morning, Oswald left while his wife was still in bed feeding the baby. She did not see him leave the house, nor did Ruth Payne. On the dresser in their room, he left his wedding ring, which he had never done before. His wallet, containing $170, was left intact in a dresser drawer. Oswald walked to Frazier's house about half a block away and placed a long, bulky package made out of wrapping paper and tape into the rear seat of the car. He told Frazier that the package contained curtain rods. When they reached the depository parking lot, Oswald walked quickly ahead. Frazier followed and saw Oswald enter the depository building, carrying the long, bulky package with him. This is your host, Jeff Curdell, and I hope you've enjoyed Episode 3 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.